Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I will keep it very quick this week. You've got a delightful guest, Claire Hooper. Claire Hooper is about to be on tour around Australia. She is one of the funniest and most delightful comedians you will see. Uh, January 29, she starts at Perth Fringe World, then she's on to the Adelaide Fringe Festival, Melbourne Comedy Festival, and I'm sure other places to come. So check out Claire. Also, if you're listening to this on the day that it comes out, I have four more shows of my improvised What You Talking About Will shows at the Sydney Comedy Store. Done six already. They have been amazing fun thank you to all the people who've come out who've sat down the front who've been so generous with their time and their stories it has been delightful fun friday and saturday are already sold out so if you are hearing this on the wednesday tonight or tomorrow are your only chances to see that show if you are in melbourne you will get a chance to see that show though i'm doing 10 of them for the very first time at the melbourne international comedy festival in the comedy theater but before i get to that i am off to brunswick heads for a week of shows uh, up the north coast uh, doing my will informed show then adelaide fringe with will informed as well Although maybe, you know, maybe when I'm in Adelaide, we might try to find a room and do a What You Talking About Will as well. Anyway, we'll see what we can do while we're in Adelaide. And then uh, Melbourne, uh, Brisbane, Perth, a whole bunch of other places already on sale. So go to comedy.com.au to check out those dates. And of course, if you want to support this podcast, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash willosophy, which helps me, you know, pay all the people who help get the podcast out every week. So thank you very much for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoy this delightful episode with Claire Hooper. Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Very excited to have today's guest in. I've seen her three times in a week, which is quite unusual, but very delightful. Uh, guest, who are you? My name's Claire Hooper and I'm a comedian. Hello, Claire Hooper, comedian. <laughs> you said that in kind of a resigned way. Yeah, do you know what? Because I know the podcast. And I'm like, I'm like, let's just do this quickly and easy, like ripping a Band-Aid off. But it's also weird to call myself a comedian because I don't write that down anywhere else. I usually, like on an incoming passenger card, I would write presenter because it is vague and it doesn't invite further questions. So what, what is that about? But, but the very nature of this is inviting yeah. further questions. So you I, And I also know you're a comedian. So you know, I'd be like, what are you hiding? Why are you <laughs> saying presenter when you're actually oh, a comedian? I nearly, I nearly did. I nearly did. And, and we're having an exchange student stay with us soon. And, you know, when it said uh, what's my occupation? I wrote presenter there as well. I was like, well, it'd be just so weird to say comedian for this poor little Japanese girl. I think that would raise unrealistic expectations and of what sort too. of household <laughs> a com- a, a, an exchange student was coming to That's right. live in. And Bicycle I, horns and rubber chickens everywhere, Will. Exactly. Well, particularly, you know, there's a Japanese style of comedy that is very yes. sort of um, slapstick meets surreal meets vaguely sexual mm. that they might have suddenly imagine the household was going to be like. Because oh. if they're imagining Japanese comedy, it's yeah. very different to the Australian style of comedy. Yeah, it is. <laughs> oh, yeah. You you seem to know Japanese comedy quite well. I watched a lot of Clive James shows when right. I was growing up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember that. Yeah, and I, yeah I remember no, that. We, you know episode. what we do? We watch a lot of um, uh, Japanese ads just come across our desk at Gruen as well. And there of is course. a certain style of humour that is predominant in those ads that leans into the surreal, leans into the, you know, some in the the vein of the Tokyo Shock Boys, a little bit of that sort mm. of year as well. Absolutely. It's not mm. going to um, put this girl at ease. 
No. You know, like, as in her, her nerves about visiting Australia for the first time, she is not going to be reassured if Tokyo Shock Boys is yeah. what she imagines for her host parents. Or if she's just seen the movie The Joker. And she's like, oh, <gasps> oh. oh I'm going to a stand-up comedian, probably going to have a bad gig and then... Oh, and then she'll turn. <laughs> That's right. Okay, great. So I put presenter for that. But, uh, but the reality yes. is comedian is the core thing that I do. And I do so much, just like just like you, I have a diverse portfolio. Uh, but it all... But it's all from comedian, you know, like when you get offered corporate emceeing or when you get offered a radio job or when you get offered, I mean, I've just written a children's book because it hasn't everybody. Mm. Um, I think I'm now officially the only stand-up comedian who hasn't written a children's book. (laughs) No, you're the only one. Um, Yeah, all of these opportunities come because you're a comedian and I think there is an assumption that if you can do stand-up comedy, probably the other things aren't too scary for you. You know, you can be trusted in a in a strange and uncomfortable situation. Do you, do you know what I mean? I do. I absolutely do know what you mean. I, but it's so funny then that we're so reticent to claim it publicly. Like yeah. about a decade ago, I decided, because I used to be that person. I used to say writer or I used to say mm. presenter or I used to say whatever, just to in some ways avoid that next step of the conversation, particularly in a cab or an Uber or whatever, you would, you know. Oh, it's, it's never gone well mm, in an Uber. Mm. Yeah, mostly I would just say writer so that I don't have to, in a second, hear a racist joke or a sexist joke, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> you know the minute you say, I'm a comedian, they say, well, I've got a joke for you. <laughs> and you're like, I'm not going to enjoy this joke. And now I'm going to have to laugh along a little bit so I still get a five-star so the, rating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just a quick sidestep. I actually don't enjoy Uber because I hate the experience of being rated. I mean, I've gotten enough in my professional life and I don't need it on the way to the gig as well. And I know that nothing I do is particularly controversial in an Uber, but I hate that feeling that I'm sure they have as well. And I'm like, it's okay. I'm going to give you five stars no matter what. I mean, I should just open with that. I'm like, don't worry. It'll be five stars for you. Please just don't even look me with any sort of critical eye. Don't decide that I'm talking too much or too little. Please. I don't want to, I'd much rather. But then do you get in your own head that they would then still judge you just based on that? The yeah. Fact that oh, you no, that's front, right. That that would be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's a real three-star operator with her demands up the front that I get five stars and I don't look her in the eye. <laughs> no, I agree with you. Yeah. I feel like every time you get in an Uber, you're like, oh, God, I can't quite relax in this situation. I definitely have to take off oh, my good. headphones. I can't listen to the podcast I was still listening to because I need to, what if the driver wants to say something to me and I need yes. to. Yes. They, I'm so glad you think so too. And I wonder if it's because so much of our life is about getting feedback and ratings and reviews and and our, and our entire living depending on it being good. Yeah, I got a three-star Uber review. Red like a five though. Red yeah. like a five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of laughs, yeah. three-star. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, where, okay. I'm so sorry. Where were we? No, no, this is okay. Yeah. This is what the podcast is. We, we ramble along. But I think it's we're making a a genuine point here, which is because I'm interested in, because I've been through it myself, about the declaration of comedian or not. Because, you know, you mentioned corporate work or whatever. Like often if you're at a corporate event, you know, the person's gone to your Wikipedia page or your website or whatever, and they've prepared a little sort of introduction for, you know, what they're going to do. And they'll say, okay, so I'm just going to read these remarks first and then I'll bring you on. And I always see like this, you know, three quarter of a page sheet of paper where they've decided they're going to reference everything that you've ever done and highlight everything you've ever done. And I always just say to them, could you please say he's a stand up comedian, Will Anderson? That's all I would, that's all I need. Because to me, 
every single else, every single other thing that I've done in my life starts with the fact that I am a stand-up comedian. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And you, you're right. That's, to be honest, I don't mind them saying, um, even though it's an old, even though it's an, um, an old job, I don't mind them saying from Good News Week because I know that there is this 25% of the audience who are like, where do you know her from? Do you right. remember? Where's she from again? <laughs> she was a telly thing. What was it? And it's, they'll just be, you know, there'll be people. You don't want dis- them distracted. They are distracted yeah. by the fact that they can't mm. quite place me because it's a job from five years ago. You know what? You know what I mean? So it's like, that's just stand up comedian. You may remember her from the Good News, from Good News Week. Which then, of course, and then like, they go, "Oh, I do remember her right. from Good News Week." And then they right. can listen. Now I can listen. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, it's nice to have you here. I appreciate it very much. You are indeed an exceptional stand-up comedian, and also a whole bunch of other things in your life. Um, uh, do you have a philosophy towards your life? Um, life, love. You know, I never. It doesn't have to be a. Yeah. But I. But I asked the question. You knew the question was coming, I, so yeah, you must absolutely. have some answer for it. Well, it's really interesting because uh, you guys invited me a week ago and I've been thinking about it. And what's interesting is I feel like there's a lot of principles I live my life by, but in terms of a life philosophy, I look, I kind of came up with something over the last week and I was like, oh, I've never looked at things like that. That's actually really helpful, although it may answer a later question better. But I was like, oh, oh. Okay, now I feel really coy about it, but honestly, this really helped me because I think I think my philosophy up until now was just find the thing that distracts you from the fact that we're all going to die and do that, and that isn't a very cheerful one. And I do, it's it's reactive; it's reacting to the fact that we're going to die rather than just um, life being meaningful, regardless of the fact that we're going to die. Do you know what I mean? But but what, that is but absolutely if we did not what, die. If we did not die, if what would I do? If we did not die, what would you do? And like, I, I don't mean... know. I think I would spend a lot of time thinking about how I wasn't going to die. <laughs> like I don't reckon I'd get much else done. I'd be a lot of sitting on the edge of a creek just staring at the water going, how is it that we do not die? Which is what I would naturally do about how is it that we all die. I would naturally do that except that I know that it's so wonderful when you, um, when you're – when you've got a barbecue with friends and you spend you spend sort of five hours with people around you, making laugh with their stories, providing food for them, just a big loving, and you realise at the end of that, oh, I didn't think about how I was going to die for a whole five hours. That's that's what I, that's what it's all about. It's about creating those moments where you get as much flow and as much time away from the. That's one of my favourite things about stand up com- comedy. It's when you're on stage, it's like okay, you got a ten minute spot. That is going to be ten minutes where nothing else exists but the act of trying to make the comedy work. And sometimes the gig goes badly, but even then it's this beautiful thing of we were just all in this terrible moment together and the past and the future do not exist, even when it's bad. Isn't that a glorious thing? It Well, it's certainly something. That you, I mean, it, I, I agree that what you're saying is absolutely true. I mean, often people, you know, when you're going through something terrible, a good friend of ours, a, a person that we both know and a really respected Australian comedian, um, uh, his father died during the Melbourne International Comedy Festival a couple of years ago. And I, he had some shows that he was still going to do before he cancelled the rest of the shows, basically, you know, because the, of the timing. You know, you get the next two shows that everyone's coming to and it gives you enough time to, you know, cancel the rest of the run. But like a huge traumatic life event. And so that night I just went in and sat in the wings and watched his show for no other reason than just to 
be there if he needed to chat or say hello or whatever. But but at the same time, not wanting to remind, like, you know, to try to keep things normal for this person if they wanted to keep things normal. And I remember, you know, talking to them beforehand, but then seeing them walk out on stage. And yes, for that hour, they could, they had no other choice than to just be in that moment with that audience making that show. And then, of course, the minute they walk off stage, you know, you go back to the fact that unfortunately your dad's dead and that's, you know, what you're now dealing with and that's what you're looking at in your life. But there is something about that moment where it's very hard to be thinking about doing anything else. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I think, so I guess I don't know if that's a life philosophy. And and how do I boil that down into an actual sentence? Is it, it's about, it's, a, it's about, yeah, is it, it's about forgetting our own mortality. For me, it's about, okay, my philosophy of life is, but that's horrible. I'm sure, like I say, though, there are principles I live by, which mm. is, um, do do more good than harm, and um, uh, and uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, what a great time to lose any powers of articulation. Well, let's but take you, them one by one. Do good more, do more good than harm. It's a nice place yeah. to start. So, where does that come from? Have you always had that as a principle in your life, or is that something that, as you've got older and you've looked around the world and you've sort of looked at your place in the world, that you've decided that's a guiding principle by which you want to live your life? Uh, no, it's. Um, I think it's an always. Um, and I, I was definitely a very thoughtful child. Um, I, I, I think I was a philosophical child, and I was called a dreamer. But I, but um, I liked, and and I got a lot of it from my mum. My mother and father ran a small business, and they. What style of business was it, if you don't mind me asking? Mate, it was the best business ever. So they've got this garden centre, and they still run it. And it's in Perth, Western Australia, and it, um, it's um, Australian plants. They sell some other plants, but they don't sell anything that requires lots of pesticides or lots of water. Their whole philosophy is, you know, like they're not going to sell it to you if it's going to be hard to keep alive or or requ- have a an impact on, on the, environment, the environment, right? So beautiful. That's a beautiful Native philosophy plants for, for a start. native land. Yes. Yes. Um, and they were up against it because there was a real trend towards native plants in the 70s because everyone thought that they would be easier, but people, the people choosing native plants were the people who didn't want to do any gardening. And then you had all these disgustingly ugly gardens in the 80s that were the result of basically lazy gardeners choosing native plants. Native plants got this really yeah. bad rap. My These are low care, them. not no care. <laughs> yeah, low care, no care. And so my parents did the excellent work of bringing natives back into popularity, at least in their small community. I love it. They would always pay. I mean, like people who work in a garden centre don't get paid much. So it's not like they were making anyone millionaires, but they would always pay above award. That was like they would never pay the base amount of money. It would always be extra. They, I just felt like they were generous employees that treated their employers, that treated their employees like a family. And then everything, they would only, if anything died that someone took home, they would replace it. And it's a plant. That's a bold thing to do. Mm. I just feel like they, they were very generous and kind in their way of doing business and it was always ethical and and you saw that or you were explained that by them I'd, I'd love to know you know was that just your observation something that you inherently understood or were they explaining to you the way that they went about things as a you know a lesson to you uh no I don't think they were explaining the way they did the business although I feel like we must have had the conversation about how 
Well, you know, I don't think I knew that staff got paid over award until I started working there at about 14. And then, you know, it was explained to me, well, because there's no point giving a 14-year-old more than they need to be given, but not letting them know, because it's not like they'll ever know. They'll just be an ungrateful 14-year-old. But there, was, there were a few lessons that my mother and father taught me as a child, and I was able to understand that they had, they were a they were a metaphor for bigger things. So one of the things my dad would always say was, um, you you can't pick a flower because everyone pick, if everyone picked a flower, there would not be no flowers left. That was one of the things that he would say. Often we would go on a lot of bushwalks or we'd look at wildflowers out in the outback and he'd say, if everyone took a flower, there would not be no flowers left. And I understood. And he also, one of his other lessons was, you should always take slightly less than what you think is your share because everyone thinks their share is bigger than it is. And that was also like a real, I mean, you know, that was like cutting up the cake, but it was also, I understood that that was, that, that really means everything. And I think it's so true. Like we always assume, we, we are naturally as humans inclined to think that more of the armrest belongs to us or that we have been more hard done by than someone else. Or, I mean, or even that our story is more interesting than the next person's and therefore it requires more space in the conversation. I think we just naturally do ourselves favours all the time and it's really good to keep checking yourself and going, you may actually deserve one less biscuit than you've taken. It might be time to stop and let someone else talk. You know, just... I, do, I, do, I mean, maybe he didn't mean it like that. Maybe he literally just meant the cake, but I... <laughs> He's like, what are you talking about? This was literally and exclusively a oh. philosophy about cake. It has no life lessons in it. I don't know. I don't like how you've run with it. And when I said only pick one, if everyone picked a plant, I really was protecting our business. Yep. We sell plants, Claire. Yep, it was a right. lesson about our business and not about the world. Yeah, okay. No, that's true, Will. You're probably right. Um... He had one more that I remember and it was, it's only got so many goes in it, but that was less useful in the, I mean, like that's a thing. And he just meant when, when he'd catch us flicking the light switch on and off, he'd be like, it's only got so many goes in it, which isn't as eloquent as the other life lessons. Uh, I, I will say this though, that I pro- there probably is a life lesson in that as well. Yeah, there which is, is, isn't there? You know, that, I mean, maybe that's yeah. actually informed my fear of death and the mm. fact that everything I do in my life is about either avoiding the thought of it or preparing for it. Yeah. Uh, my dad, when I remember us going to the cricket, it's funny how those things stick in your mind because I, you know, I'd love to talk to you, you know, in this conversation about your, you being a parent and how you've, you know, thought about that. But um, uh, I remember, it's funny, isn't it? Sometimes it's not the sit you down on your knee and teach you a lesson moments. It's It can be those other moments where you take a lot more out of them. And I have this one distinct memory and it's not a big moment, you know, really in life, but I, I come back to it all the time. And I just remember I would have been, I don't know, maybe 10 or 11, I guess. And my dad had driven us down to the MCG from the country, you know, to go and uh, watch a game of cricket or football. I don't even remember which it was. You know, I don't even remember what the game was or what the moment was. I remember this moment from the day and we drove down, we parked at the MCG, you know, down from the country. And as we were driving in, they were paying the, he was paying the ticket guy and he had had just a conversation with him, you know, how's your day, mate, you know, blah, 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 whatever. But I remember afterwards um, saying to my dad, I said, oh, did you know, do you know that guy? And he goes, no, 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 but, you know, it, it's it's his day at work and, you know, it doesn't cost you anything to be nice to somebody at their day at work. And I just remember, like, 
it was such a moment in my life where I come back to it so often if if I am not doing that, like if I am not giving somebody, you know, remembering that it is also their day at work, like that moment comes back to me so often. And I, I don't think he sat down and went, I'm about to teach William something yeah. about right now, but I remember it distinctly. And I feel disappointed when I'm not doing that. And I feel proud of myself when I remember, you know, to acknowledge everybody's space in the world that I am, you know, hurtling through. Yeah. Yeah, how about that? And you're right. It's um you kind of can't plan it if you're a parent, can you? You you know, like a, I reckon a kid is going to resist formalized attempts to help them create a life philosophy, right? <laughs> they're gonna like they're not gonna enjoy you turning the um kitchen table into a classroom and yet and yet your dad says something offhand about basically just, you know, be decent. And it's really stuck with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really has. So um, so you grow up in Western Australia. Yeah. Um, you work, and I get an insight into this because I worked on the family farm from a pretty yeah, young age. Of course. When you've got a business like that, of course you're going to end up as a teenager working in the family business. Did you yeah. enjoy it? Yes, absolutely. But... Um, I mean, I definitely turned up at one minute to start time and left one minute, if that, after I was meant to clock off. I was really, I mean, like I was not passionate. Uh, I, I was passionate about some elements. Actually, when I think back to it, there were there were areas that I put a lot more effort in. And mum and dad were really lovely. They let me do the funny signs on the blackboard that sat on a sandwich board outside. You know, like I could. Was that your first taste of comedy? I reckon it was. A few people coming through going, that's pretty funny. Good sign today, Claire, right? (laughs) Yeah, maybe. And and so it's really, I mean, like I'd get put on weeding duty a lot, but I also really, oh, no, I mean, I reckon at the time I probably would have tried to get out, out of the weeding, but there's something really nice about sitting amongst the pots and just pulling weeds out and you've got, you've got a lot of time to think. And then I really enjoyed helping people find something that would be good for their garden. And then, yeah, got to do the signs. And the longer I was there, I was I set up a kids' gardening club. So I would do this silly little newsletter that went out quarterly. And then we'd do gardening workshops with the kiddos or just, silly, you know, like Easter craft events or whatever. So there was, I guess you just, um, yeah, even at that age, I was playing to my strengths. But are I also you- really liked service. I quite like helping uh, people with their garden. Um, are you are still a keen gardener. Do you, do you no, have... my God. Oh, well, I'm almost getting there now. It's so it's so funny. I'm like I'm a qualified horticulturist. I'm like a I've got garden design qualifications because right. before comedy had taken off, you know, you're just trying to get everything together that you can. You're yeah. like, well, maybe this will work. I have a journalism degree. Right. I've never used it. You know what? I would argue that that is more closely aligned with the commentary that you do on the stand-up stage. Then horticulture, like horticulture, doesn't play into what I do day to day very much at all. Horticulture plays in a little bit of what I do. It's day almost more helpful for you. <laughs> we can have a conversation afterwards. Uh, no, I was, I've just, I've just, um, uh, we're moving to a place that has a beautiful garden. Oh, like has well, a stunning. Uh, how much was that part of the decision for you? Well, did. the garden itself, like I like nature. I like m- being amongst the thing that I've realised in my life is that I've never wanted to go back to the farm, but like 17 years of growing up in the country does, there is a bit of it infecting who you are and just maybe your body algorithms or whatever. And so I've enjoyed Mm. my city time. I really do like the city and I feed off the energy of the city. But 
as I've got older and older, what I really have realized about myself is I love the water and I love nature. Like I love our house is always filled with flowers. Like even when I've lived in places that haven't had, you know, big gardens, but this place that we're moving to has a really proper big Will, I will have to learn how to maintain a garden garden, you know. Uh, and congratulations, I'm, I'm, yes. but also you can just hire a gardener. Oh, both. Don't both. get me wrong. Yeah, the, right. This, okay. This will have a level of having to do both. Okay. There will oh, be my a, goodness. Yeah, a monthly visit or whatever from a proper gardener, but there will be like, you know, maintenance that, you know, I assume that I will have to do as well. What and, do you imagine? Do, do you imagine uh, sitting at the back of your house looking out onto the garden? Do you imagine sitting in the garden, do you imagine just be, like actually enjoying harvesting stuff from it? Like what? How is all this, of those things? All of them. So amazing. It, it has one of those gardens that has um, several different like spaces that you oh. can actually be in. Yeah, like you know, okay, air, right. you know, so areas that are you know surrounded by various different types of the garden. Um, and so there's that. There's a vegetable garden. So I'm hoping Excellent. that we will like grow things and eat things that we actually grow ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, there's a an el- element of it that is just that it looks beautiful. Yeah. You know, it might be the first thing that I've done in my entire career that my nan will be proud of. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I can show her pictures in the garden yes. and she'll be like, it's all worth it. Look at those roses. And it's such a – okay, so, so I'm – I should be a great gardener and it's taken so, so long when we bought this place that we're currently in and it has a massive garden, bought it many, many years ago and we are, it, it has been such slow progress because I don't think I'm naturally, like I'm just, I'm not, I could say I'm lazy but I don't think so. I just think I prioritise other things because I do know that I can work really hard but when I'm at home I just tend to, I tend to get like a bit of blindness as to the garden and maintenance that is piling up. And um, and also there's something incredibly expensive about doing it properly. You know, like if you do go, oh, we're going to do this patch, we're going to get the plants for this patch, you're looking at hundreds of dollars and we just tend to be more careful with money. We don't just splash a couple of hundred dollars. I know, we do, whatever. What? Um, um, and to do it properly would require thousands and, you know, the sort of money that it, that you could actually go on a European holiday with and that is the way we do splash money. So we just have tended to just let our house be run down and but but homely like we love it it's home but it's run down the house is the garden is because we don't spend the money on it and we don't take the time okay yeah so but gradually and it's only in the last few years that I've realized we might be turning into those people and I I'm really surprised at it but it's beautiful yeah I mean last year we planted my husband's folly a cornfield a cornfield, because he just wanted to take photos. He wanted to put on a straw hat and take photos, like kneeling in the cornfield, inspecting the corn. I was like, well, fine, yeah. let's do that. What's stopping us from planting 50 plant, like corn plants in a cornfield? Because we got the room. And then this year, the cornfield was replaced by my flower garden. So we just planted like this giant field of flowers for the kids to enjoy. It's So I think we might be starting to turn into it. And then sometimes friends come over, they're like, they say, garden looks good. And I'm like, oh, does it? So... I feel like something has happened maybe in the last 12 months or 24 months. We might be becoming those people. But I think it's a really, really long road. And I actually wonder if that's why older people enjoy gardening so much. And I don't think anyone realises how much it is, but it's that it is a hard-won skill. Those people who have good gardens and are good at keeping their garden nice, that is 
that is like 30, 40 years of habit building and minute knowledge, you know, like working out what does work where and what sort of prunings different things need and when is the time to fertilise and dehead the roses. And that is like you could read a book about gardening, but I honestly reckon it's it's a real life's work. And so people might not realise that, but I wonder if that's why it gives them like people who love gardening love it so hard and it's almost like, I don't know, it's like um, speaking a language that you have taken years to teach yourself and then going to the country and speaking the language. Like it's a hard, it's actually much harder than people realise and that's why it's something to be so proud of. Yeah, I'm hoping there's a lot of YouTube tutorials, basically. (laughs) That's my entire... Oh, you got some mates that know your gardens, though. Uh, Yeah. I can come over and do a little poke around your garden. Oh, that sounded awful. Sorry. Uh, No, I think you'd love to poke around the garden, seriously. I really would, wouldn't (laughs) I? Yeah, yeah. I'll show you some photos afterwards. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, Okay, so... I like this story. This is like working at the family business. Is it your brothers and sisters? What's your... I've got two brothers. They're both younger than me. They're both oh, okay. tall, ginger men. Um, and the littlest one has taken over the family business. Ah, uh, yes. So yeah. that that was what I was going to ask. So who, my Who got it? My brother is also a tall, ginger man, and he took over the family business as yeah. well. Was there pressure from your parents? Were, were there hopes that somebody would take over the family business? Maybe. Um And for a bunch of reasons, the family home is on the same block as the garden centre. And we talked about how if they sold to someone else, mum was like, well, you know, you can subdivide, but imagine living next door to the place that you walked into every single morning of your life. And also that you hadn't, you know, when you'd hear somebody breaking in in the night, you know, dad had to get up with a torch and chase them off. and, And so to have to feel an ownership over that space and then let someone else have it would have been weird. It is a wonderful result that my brother took it on. I did think that they might have thought maybe Claire will, but in fact I talked to my mum about it recently and she was like, oh, I knew that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so, Which is funny because even I didn't know that yeah. it wasn't going to happen for sure, but no, it was never going to happen. I, I think I have some of the necessary skills but not. Not enough of them. Does it feel like a, an anchor in your life, the fact that your family have been running this business for so long, that that family home has been there for so long, that it's still part of your family story? Does that give you some sort of security or anchor in your life, knowing that that thing is still there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm very lucky whenever I go to Perth. I'll be going to the Perth Fringe to do my shows, but I will, even though they're nowhere near my venue, I will be staying with them because it is wonderful and it's beautiful there and it's amazing that it is, the, it, the, it's staying inside the bricks that I grew up in. I got brought home from the hospital to the garden centre and the the story is that my first word was flower and I don't know if it was, but I like, <laughs> I like the story. Yeah, why, I mean, why not? Why not? Why, why not? It's not like you can understand kids' words until they're two anyway. No. So let's just say it is what it is. Like yeah. the fact that we all say it's flower means that that's what's important to us. So, yeah, yeah. anyway, yes, it's an, it's an amazing thing. And my, um, my husband's childhood was so different. They moved constantly. He is currently, like our house that we live in now, he has never remotely lived in a place that long, not even in his childhood. They just moved every two years. They, um, so he doesn't have that. I mean, he has the whole country of New Zealand as a home, but he doesn't have a home home the same way I do. You know, like as in I can go home and as an adult, I'm 43 and I'll, I'll walk around the garden and I'll remember playing with my Barbies 
behind that bush. And I'll remember climbing up that tree. And it's that's pretty incredible. And it's, you know, like you can live a happy life without it. But, yeah, I'm really lucky. It's lovely having a connection to your childhood, a physical thing you, to take you back. Do you, because one of the things I've realised and one of the, the reasons we're moving is that, yeah, so my dad, he has lived in the house that I grew up in for 70 years, right? That's amazing. And I spent the first 17 years of my life, you know, in that house, yeah. on that road. And then since then, I've probably lived in 17 other houses, yeah. you know, all over the place. And one of the things that I realized that I've been craving is the idea that we could be somewhere for a long period of time. So what I'm hoping is that this move might be our sort of... This can be, then be our base, you know, for... You are a, so close to saying forever home and you just can't, can yeah. you? It's because who knows? Phrase. It might not uh, yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, that's but, right. But actually moving into something that c- could potentially be that. Well, or, the, well, or more... Th- that th- it's that, worth planting a tree in the soil at. Moving into a community. So we're moving or, out of the oh city. Oh, gosh, yeah. And moving into a community of 30,000 people or 50,000 people or whatever that local, you know, area is. And putting down some roots in regard to friendships and social groups and places yeah. where you go, you know, just that sort of aspect of it. And I, I feel like rather than, you know, where I grew up calling me back, that sort of life where you know people and you know the community and you live within the community and these sort of things that you don't necessarily do in the same way as in the suburbs have, is, is something that is appealing to me, I think. Have you done it before or are you the sort of person who in every previous location has almost actively not got to know your neighbours? Uh, that, what, that one. Yeah, 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 me too. Yeah, you just, you're like, let's just, let's yeah. just both agree to never look each other in the eye. It'll be so much easier. We'll occasionally hear clues as to the sort of people we live next door, but that is it. No Christmas street parties, please. No, like, notes in the letter. But, oh, yeah. we. Had, I, yeah. W- I won't be here heaps. And when I am here, let's pretend like I'm not here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we've always been, and we are, I mean, as, as we are transitioning into people whose garden looks like somebody works on it, very slowly. Um, we are also transitioning into people who know their neighbours, and it's really uh, we had um, we had drain works. They left a really loud extractor in our backyard on a Friday night, and it was going all night. And we weren't meant to unplug it, and we unplugged it because we're like, "Well, this is ridiculous." And then at seven a.m., I was like, "I better plug it back in." It was so noisy, and so I left little notes in the neighbours because I had to. I was like, "I'm so sorry about the noise. This is nothing to do with us." The drain people came in. They've left this and told us it has to be on all weekend. Anyway, and then, you know, the guy came round just as I'm putting the paper in the um, in the letterbox and I've never seen him before. And then we have to meet, you know, with him. And you can tell he was coming to have a, like, complaint. And, a, and I'm like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. And then we make friends over the fact that we're both at the mercy of the drain people. And um, and I loaned him my, my noise-cancelling headphones, <laughs> right? I'm just like, I'll get you some hair. He's like, oh, it's, it's my partner I'm worried about. She really needs some sleep. And I'm like, don't worry, I'll get my headphones. And I loaned this man that I'd just met that who nearly yelled at me. And then I go back to Wade and he's like, what did you do? Like you've, what you gave them, the noise cancelling headphones? Anyway, later that day they passed them over the fence and all, and we definitely have actively tried to not know the people around us, but more and more we are now accidentally knowing the names and eyes of our neighbours. Um, have, does, so how old are you? You'll enjoy it anyway. It's so much, it's not as bad as you think it's going to no, be. No, I don't no, know. No. What, is, what is our fear 
of making friends with the people next to us. Are we worried they'll come on too strong and we'll say hello and then they'll keep coming around for cups of tea? Is that what we're worried about? And would that be so bad? Oh, for me, it's always just more that, like, I don't need another place where I need to be at my best. You know, like, so, like, home to me feels like the place that I should be able to walk around, you know, without having to talk to people oh, or yeah, yeah, yeah. present you don't, for people. Yeah, or, if you're putting the bins out and you yeah. see your neighbour, so much better I'm to just, just ha- not say anything. Yeah. Often like, when I'm putting the bins out, I just want to put the bins out. Yeah. I want to keep listening to my podcast to put the bins out. Yeah, and we could just assume <laughs> they do too, though, couldn't we? Yeah, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Uh, okay, so um, uh, parent. Talk to me about you being a parent. Being a parent? Yes. Yeah, it's really... So how many children do you have? I've got two and little girls. Uh, little girls, how old? At time of record, mm. three and five, but they're perilously close to four and six, mm. which, I mean, that's much too old, isn't it? That's not <laughs> cute anymore. Um, I always assumed I wanted kids. I was always really good with kids. I mean, like I ran a kid's gardening, um, regular kid's gardening workshops. I always taught in schools. I did theatre and education. Like I adored children all my life and all my 20s, I assumed I would have them. And I was engaged to a guy in my 20s and that we broke up. And I remember... Um, um, on my 30th birthday going, well, I'm a spinster now forever because you assume 30 is very old right. when you're 30. <laughs> and then I m- met Wade months later. Anyway, that's not – so the point is I always assumed I would have kids and then it took us so long that I had my first kid at 37, which is absolutely not too old. That's no. not a – but it is – but it was interesting in that I think I had spent so long without children that the adjustment was painful. Like at no point did we want to leave our first child. It's not like we wanted to get her adopted out, but we, I mean, it was an absolute gear change that we were not, no one can prepare you for it. Just that thing of always having something in your arms or if you put it down, it may it may just go off again at any time. And when you close your eyes and put your head on your pillow, that you're not off duty at any point. Like it was brutal. And we only had the second one by accident. I don't know if we would have had a second one. And then we were like, oh, well, I guess we're having a second one. And so it was good the choice was taken out of our hands because the second one is actually done something to occupy the other. Like they do distract each other a little. So that was a good... That was a good move in the end. Anyway, so me as a parent. Anyway, I'm just trying to. I'm trying to. I'm trying to pitch it. I'm trying to frame it for you. It but was that's a good because that's really interesting. Because if you'd had, it sounds to me like if you'd had a kid at 25, you would have been slap bang in the zone of thinking, of course I'm having a kid. I I've worked with kids. I, I, yeah. I love surrounding myself with children. This is exactly how I imagine my life would be. Mm-hmm. So. To then have, you know, live long enough enough of that not being your life that you're suddenly like, oh, yeah, I really wanted kids and I'm happy that I'm having a kid. But at the same time, I've built up this whole life that a child is completely inconvenient to bring into. Yeah, I have just a natural momentum. Like Mm. I... (laughs) I I'm I'm not even talking in terms of career, just natural. Yeah, just just everything. Just everything. (laughs) Everything flows and it no longer flows. Um, and then, yeah, gosh, it's really interesting too. So you are just scrambling nonstop for two years, maybe three, and we are we are absolutely like we've got our what? Um, what is it like? You know, we, we were Wade and I would do this gesture for where we were at, which meant where the water's up to, and we used to do it up to our eyeballs and just tip our nose back out of it. We're up to, we're here, we're here. The water's going down, right? And then we do that, and some days we'd like do it just to our chin. We like. 
water's down to here now. And I really feel like we're kind of water's down to maybe our chest. And I don't know if you know what I mean by that, but it's just like how much are we drowning in this incredibly intense life experience that is children? I think it's easier for some people, but for the two of us, we're just big children ourselves. Is it easier for some people? Don't know. Mm. I don't I don't know. I think some people get, you know, dealt the hand that they get an easier kid. Both of ours are really bad sleepers, so we were always overtired. And um, as the main breadwinner, I was taken out of the game, so we were always poor and we were worried about bills. Poor. Sorry, uh, that's the wrong word. What we were was overstretched. We, we, we'd committed to more than we could afford. That is not poor. Um, so we... But it feels... Like I understand, Very stressful. I, I understand that you've made the distinction because they're a genuine. Oh, you know, it is. You don't want to compare yourself to oh, someone mean, who's genuinely poor, but you you would be time poor and you would be resource and money poor in the situation poor, you were in. Poor, resource poor, yeah. yeah. Like it was a so and and then they are little needy, demanding unreasonable creatures that never say thank you. And, I mean, the thing is I've lived my whole life thinking I'm a really nice person. Mm. And when I, now that I've had children, I realise I was never nice. I just liked being told thank you. Like everything, all that niceness was just about that look on people's face when they looked at you like you're so, oh, my goodness, thank you. Oh, that's so kind. That I was apparently just doing it for that. So niceness once in I had itself some, Once I had enough. some humans, that's right, yeah. humans around me that did not say thank you, I'm like, turns out I'm not nice <laughs> because I'm not enjoying these and I'm not feeling it. Right? That's a really interesting insight. Did, did you? I still think I'm quite nice, but, I, but only because I've practised it for so long. To get the thanks. It is interesting though, that isn't it, that the thanks is part of it? Yes. That it wasn't just the idea that, no, no, I'm still being nice. I'm still, I'm looking after this human. Yeah. Like, you know, with everything that I can possibly do and with every bit of energy that I possibly have, that's a very nice thing to do, but I actually need them to say thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And why it probably not... is why, oh. you know, the, the, the one thing you remember from a kid with every parent getting angry at the kids for not saying thank you. Like yeah. it is a very common <laughs> isn't it? thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Say thank you. You always say thank you. And while you're at it, fucking say thank you to me. Oh, my God. And that's why, I mean, that's why everybody's, people talk about, you know, oh, my mum can't wait for me to have kids. She just wants some grandchildren. No, she doesn't. She wants you to turn to her and say, I see what you yeah. are talking about now. I get that's it. That's all it is because <laughs> I can't wait for my girls to have kids now. If they don't have kids, I don't know what I'm going to do. I just want them to be like, all oh, right, mum, got it. Mm. Yeah, we just want to pass on the pain. Um, anyway, where, where were we at? So, so with the water up to our cheekbones, we try to be good parents, but you absolutely don't have time to have a proper thought or a conversation about are we bringing them up right? Like you're doing everything. You, you know, your gut's pretty decent. You teach them to say thank you. You're trying to make them resilient, blah, blah, blah. You're trying to do – a lot of parents are really good and they do flashcard learning with their kids. No, we didn't have, we didn't have the mental energy for that. We think – you know, and you feel so proud when somebody says your kid is nice. Um. But, yeah, in terms of passing on actual lessons, it's going to have to be accidentally like it was for me. It's going to be, ha- it's going to be things that they observe, they hear me saying or that I say casually and they hold on to and use as, um, as some sort of upbringing because I definitely, yeah, I just, it's, so, it's, just a, it's such a scramble. I can't be conscious about raising good kids. We just, 
We're just crossing our fingers and following our guts. When it takes so much of your time, how did you readjust your relationship? Like you said, m- you know, main breadwinner. Like, how did you readjust your relationship with family and work? And then how do you emerge out of that to start working more again? And how does that work? Yeah, um, uh, for all the difficult difficulty in adjusting, I actually returned to work what I think well. So I got offered a spot on the um, Josh Earl Spicks and Specs six weeks after having my first child. And um, some people, you know, I think I think they're just making you feel good about yourself. But people are like, oh, my goodness, you're back so soon. You look great, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's, I think it's just people um, saying what they're meant to say. But actually, after six weeks, you're like, oh, it would be good to do the thing that I, that you, it would be good to visit old me again for a few hours and it was only a few hours and we are really lucky in the work that we do where we we don't take a three-month contract, we take a one day's work. Like I can say yes or no according to whether I think I'm ready. So I could go back bit by bit and absolutely I loved being on that stage, you know, recording that episode. I was like, oh, this feels so, this is an old friend, this feeling. And it was great and then I returned to my baby who was, absolutely screaming the house down in a green room far away that I couldn't hear and my husband was having a terrible time. Whatever, who cares? No, not true, not true. There's a bit of you that's also dying for them and their discomfort, but you do what you got to do. Um, and, um, and God, I've, and I've breast, in those, in those first few months, breastfed her by peeling a ball dress down and being in a, like in a backstage area and Wade's walked her over from the hotel. And you know what? We could have, I guess we could have just put her on formula or anything. But again, you're just not making, you're not making smart decisions. You're just like, I think I'm doing what I want to do. I don't know. So yeah, it was, um, it was hard and stressful, but the actual bits where I was doing my work were a joy because like I said, it was like, okay, get to be old me for a bit. And then when I got to uh, sort of at about a year for the first one and about seven months for the second one, I started traveling for work and leaving them behind only one night, but you know, and I would take the last possible flight I could and take the absolute earliest one home I could. And I'd always at the point where the point where I wasn't doing the work, where I didn't have a microphone in my hand, I would feel the strangest, what must be like it, it's not rational, just the strangest to be home, this long elastic band and I couldn't get there and I would speed or I would, you know, like I would not even say goodbye to people. It was this very strange thing that obviously I had no control over. But when I was actually doing the work, I was in the moment. We talked about that. Yeah, like in the moment, in a very happy moment. The only tricky thing was when you're not sleeping at night, sometimes you are not as quick or as you would like to be. And so sometimes I would be on stage knowing that I was not delivering like I used to be able to, but that was only in the first year and it was only occasionally. Uh, you talk about Wade and yourself and, you know, you, what level the water's at. Did you have to come up with a new language of, you know, communicating with each other so that that tiredness and that anxiety and those sort of things you didn't start taking out on each other in the relationship that you could be supportive of each other rather than tear each other apart? Or is it a bit of both? Or is it like, how does that, you know, like, cause I mean, obviously it changes your relationship in so many ways yeah. having a kid, but also just, I mean, if you had to go through, even if you didn't have a kid, 
but you had to go through the lack of sleep, the, you know, whatever, right. for Doesn't completely matter other reasons. That's right. How often, yeah, yeah, your relationship, you've, you know, like you've, um, you might have missed flights on an overseas trip or you might have run out of, one of you know, one of you's done something stupid if you run out of money and can't pay a bill. So you've lived through the kind of light version of it. But, um, yeah, when you suddenly are both not really sleeping, um, and I think you, for me, there were some truths that aren't true that I was living. A, I felt like I had forced the baby on the relationship. Like I felt like it was my fault we had a kid. And I don't think he at any point said, I don't think we should have a kid. I just think because it was my idea, I felt obliged to get tireder than him, which is silly because I'm, I mean, not, not silly, uh, but also if I have the capacity to earn more, then there's actually a logic to me saying, I probably need to sleep tonight. Can you take the baby overnight? Because then I can do a better job on this job tomorrow. That would you mean, been, the, you we, mean the thing that men have done for hundreds of years or thousands yeah. of years? I mean, but that's a very, as in like, yeah, you, you, yeah, know, yeah, you, yeah. Fe- you felt like you couldn't do the same thing that pretty much any man until about 20 years ago did as matter of course, which was I, get up and, go, you know, My work is a priority. Yeah. So how do we how do we make sure I'm well enough rested for my work? Anyway, I don't I hope I'm not painting Wade badly at all here because what was happening was two people who weren't communicating right. very well. Um so yeah, the first year was really the first year was really tricky and I think it was um <laughs> I actually talked about this one incident in a show, but it was about seven months, maybe eight months into the second child where I was we just hadn't we both hadn't slept properly for years because they were both rubbish sleepers. And this one had kept me up all night and I was in Adelaide for a friend's wedding. And um, and I just lost it in the hotel room that morning. Like I had a screaming fit and threw things around the hotel room. Like I tried to smash the lamp and the hotel phone and they didn't smash, which is great. But also like an absolute, like I probably lost it. And from there, I think, and it's so it shouldn't have taken that, but from there I think Wade took a step back and went, oh, all right, let's see if we can fix you a bit and um, and really stepped up with sleep training, blah, blah, blah. But why didn't we do that earlier? Why did it take me actually smashing up a hotel room? Um, but, yeah, I think we just, we are very much in love, really good partnership, but not deep communicators. And that really tested it. Like, yeah, we both needed to say this, like, let's just have a chat about how we both feel bad all the time and let's work out how we could ask for rest when we need it. Everyone knows how difficult having a kid is, but I think there, I I don't know, I've never been through it, but my observation from the outside is that everybody then, like, takes on this idea that when it's when their kids aren't sleeping properly or whatever, takes it on very much as like, this is my fault or I'm not doing this mm. properly or I'm being a bad parent, even though everybody that I ever talk to, their kids don't really sleep properly. And, you know, like, as yeah. in like, you know, you, everybody's feeling bad for something. Like if I walked out of my house and somebody punched me in the face every day, like, well, okay, well, that's what walking out of the house is. Someone punches you in the face every day. If it happened to everybody, you can't kind of feel... That's a bad example. But yeah, you know what no, I mean? no, like, no. So what you're saying is why are we all going, why are we all stressing that yes. we couldn't get our kid to sleep better mm. when evidence is kids don't sleep well, no. work out a way to keep yourself healthy. 
Right. Rather than it's less about worrying that you can fix the sleep, and it's more about acknowledging that the lack of sleep will be there probably unless you are particularly lucky. And you have to come up with a way of managing not being able to sleep. Yes, I really would prefer that was a conversation Mm. around it. But some people do get lucky and do have kids that sleep through from about Mm. sort of six weeks or something, which Uh, is an amazing thing. We can agree. They're very few. Fuck those people. Fuck those people. (laughs) I know one of them, and it's okay because her second kid didn't sleep very well, so um, she learned. She found out. Um, (laughs) Terrible. Um, Yeah. Look, first first kid, I thought I could fix things. I tried to follow the rules to make everything work. And it made me angry. I punched walls. I mean, obviously, I lost my temper with the second one as well. I remember walking out the back alleyway in socks in winter through muddy puddles and sitting in a bus shelter on the side of a busy road because I was just like, I just got to take myself out of the situation. Meanwhile, I think actually on that occasion, Wade didn't even wake up. Um, does, no, he must have. I don't know. Like, he's a better sleeper than me. It's not, it's not his fault he's good at sleeping through and needs to be woken up to help, which is the other reason why I may as well do it because by the time I'm, like, shaking him going, hey, babe, can you take the baby. I may as well just do it. Anyway, second baby, I didn't follow the rules because I was like, fuck it. The rules didn't work. So you're not meant to feed a baby to sleep. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to feed her to sleep because it didn't work not feeding her to sleep. So what, how much worse can it be? So they both slept equally poorly with completely different (laughs) strategies. So at least I won a little bit on the second one because I was like, I just do whatever I want to do. Heaps better. That would be my recommendation. I probably shouldn't go on the record saying that, but my recommendation would be screw the rules because the rules don't work anyway. That's a good philosophy. Okay, yeah. I, I mean, James, I should make that my yeah. life philosophy. I was going to say, I bet James Fosdyke makes a little bit of art with that down the bottom of it. So um, <laughs> uh, so you're doing shows this year. You're doing stand-up shows this year. Yeah. It's a new show. Yes. Uh, what's it called? Biscuits. Biscuits. Now, is it called Biscuits because of uh, your involvement with the Great Australian, Great Australian Bake, Bake Off? Off? Or is it got is biscuits yeah. another? I wanted to call it dog biscuits, yeah. and then and I because I because Wade found out recently that I ate dog biscuits as a child, and um and I was like actual dog biscuits. Yes. Yeah, because at our school, not a lot of them. There was some sort of like terrible bulk army sort of snack co- that they called dog biscuits. Oh, cute. Okay, but weren't actually no dog actual biscuits. dog biscuits. Um, my mum and dad were kind of hippies, so we didn't have very flavoursome food and the dog biscuits had a lot of salt in them. Yeah. And so my brothers and I would sneak them out of the pantry. <laughs> anyway, so my Wade found that out. And you know those wonderful moments when you've been with someone for many, many years and then they look at you like you're a stranger. You know that beautiful thing? And so I was like, oh, yeah, I'll call the show Dog Biscuits. I'll do the show about dog yeah. biscuits, the story about dog biscuits. Anyway, and then I was like, you know what, I could just call it Biscuits. Yeah. And then it's not quite as controversial. And also it... Well, yeah, it'll it'll make a little promise to the Bake Off audience that I am the same person they've been watching on the show about biscuits. Because that's interesting to me because you now have this uh, audience from that show yeah. that is probably a little bit different. I'm sure there's no, massive think, crossover as well. but I is... think you're right. It's a different, it's a slightly different audience, isn't yes. it? Who do you, who do you play for? You can only be yourself really on stage and then hope that, hope that yourself is good enough that they just get into the swing of that. But I feel like I'm fairly authentically me on Bake Off. So I, I, I don't bake cakes and I never say that I do. Like I'm not, I'm not a baker. Um, so there won't be any stories about cakes, but I will, I reckon I'm pretty much the same version of myself that they see on screen. 
probably funnier because on Bake Off I have to spend a lot of time telling them things that aren't funny. So when it's all jokes, it'll be great. I mean, you'd hope so, right? <laughs> you'd really hope so. <laughs> when you decide to put, because you don't do a show every year. That's no. not your, you know, you're not one of those idiots who decides that you have to do a oh, show every year. I'm absolutely that idiot, but but children make it. They, the, the, their births were timed so that I couldn't. Mm. Last year was the first, like 2019, first time I ever chose not to do a show for no good reason at all. And it was a revelation. I was like, oh, I just assumed you'd do a show if you can do a show. And I just felt every single day of the festival when I didn't have to go and do a show, I felt like I'd performed some sort of magical trick. Like I honestly felt this incredible lightness. There is nothing more. It's that it's cancelled plans. There is no better feeling than cancelled plans. No matter how much you want to go to your friend's birthday party, if your friend's like, I'm a bit crook, we're not going to do the birthday party, for some reason you just, it's so exciting to not have to do something. Don't you think? Like, it's so sweet. Oh, no, I had cancelled plans this afternoon. I had something that I was meant to be doing this afternoon. And I, it's, well, rescheduled plans because we're, yeah. we're now actually doing it tomorrow. But um, but it's still good, isn't it? Yeah, well, because I had a couple of things to do today. I'm talking to you and then I'm having a conversation with Nate Belvo after this. And I was like, so when the plans afterwards got cancelled, I was like, actually, that is a relief. Yeah. <laughs> I can yeah. go home. I can hang out with the dogs. Uh, yeah, I was meant to have a coffee with a friend before seeing you. And she cancelled. And I'm like, I adore her and I love coffee. But even still, I was like, ooh, how about that a free hour? Anyway, so um, that was the feeling 24 hours a day for the entire comedy festival in 2019. Just, I also took my family to Japan just to celebrate the fact that I didn't have to be in Melbourne. And it just felt like getting away with a casino heist or something. I was just like, why, didn't, why does nobody else know you can just not do it? I, I'm trying to do my version of that. I have. I'm not. Your version of that is three shows at once. Well, it's not really three shows at once because the hardest thing for me is not doing the shows. The hardest thing for me is writing the shows. The mental energy and time and whatever that every year it takes to, you know, to write a show. So this year I'm gonna at the comedy festival I'm gonna do an old show and then I'm gonna do ten improv shows. So you're doing something else, aren't you? I'm doing my last. I'm doing this year's show for the comedy festival. Right. The rest, rest of the country because gotcha. I only did it in Melbourne. Gotcha. So I'm going to tour it to the rest of the. So essentially, I have two shows that I've already written in my pocket that I'm going to tour, and then I'm going to do some improv shows so that I'm doing something new. That's basically. So what I've taken out is that three or four months of writing and hating myself. See, that's the that, bit I like. I don't want to perform them. I just want to write it. It's amazing creating a, like creating new jokes. You don't know if they're funny or not and you try them and they are or they aren't and that's so exciting and then you start putting them in order and you work out what a good structure is and like that's the good bit. Doing it every night is the worst. We should work together. We actually should. <laughs> You're going to be doing a whole lot more jokes about biscuits than usual. Oh, no, I do. I'm happy to do some biscuit jokes. That time Will Anderson ate dog biscuits yeah. from his parents' pantry. Um, I don't think we even had dog biscuits for the dogs on the farm. I think what did they, they eat? scraps. Oh, I love it. You know, so it was a farm. Dogs prefer scraps, scraps frankly. And, yeah. yeah. Not in my house, obviously, because the scraps were the things that weren't delicious <laughs> enough for me. To, yeah. No, that's not true. No, I loved, I loved food at my parents' house, but you do find flavour where you can, don't you, as a kid? Um, so when you sit down to write a show and construct a show and put it together, like when I first, I think the first time I ever saw you do a complete show would have been in Edinburgh, right? Was that? And I don't know if I've ever thanked you enough for your support that so year. So what year would have that been? I remember, um, it was 2006. Yeah, okay. 
So that was the last time I went to Edinburgh and did a full show. So that makes sense. Yeah. You, we flyered you, me and my flyer, and I felt, it wasn't like, you weren't a stranger, but I still felt like a bit cheeky. You came because you're excellent, even though it was at midnight. What a ridiculous time to have a show. And then you proceeded to recommend the show on many nights to your audience, to your exiting audience. And they were coming out of your show at 10.30, which made a midnight show not. Anyway, this, I should not have done okay from a midnight run. But because you were next door sending audiences to me, I did okay. It was a great Thank show. Thank you so much. But it was a great show. I, mean, I, I remember was watching very it. very flawed. But, and well, I remember the joke that you laughed really hard at that I would never no, say I'd never today. Do no, I, nobody would ever no, do that joke now. No, but, well, South Park might. It was a South Park style joke. It was a little bit. You know, it was true. It had a deep truth for mm. me, but that doesn't mean you should say it. I, here's what I would say. Wasn't an inappropriate joke to be making at that time. I have this conversation with people all the time about comedy. Like, things can be of the time. It doesn't mean that they were right at the time, but things can be a thing that everybody would have said at the time. Mm. That doesn't mean that it's right. In the same way as racism, like, you know, it doesn't make it right that it used to be what everybody would say. But I think those two things, you need to have both of those conversations at the same time. When you look back at an old show like Friends and go, oh, there's a lot of... Homophobia, homophobia in this. Wasn't there a lot of homophobia? You've got to have two conversations. One is that that homophobia was never right and was terrible to, you know, homosexual people at the time. It wasn't like it was right then. It was mm. still wrong then. But the prevailing attitude of society wasn't that that was a wrong thing to say then. Yeah. And I think... Makes a 20-year comedy career a real liability, doesn't it, Will? Well, Mike, there's, but the truth of it is that... I think there's probably stuff from three years ago and six years ago and nine years ago and 12 no years ago. Yeah, three years ago I was doing a joke that I would absolutely not touch now. And it was a real sad one to let go of too because mm. I quite like the joke. Which means also there's what? probably something in this year's show for both of us I that three years from like now you, know, you will look back on and go, oh, I wouldn't have said it in that way or I wouldn't have, yeah. you know, that person wouldn't have been a butt of that joke or I would have reframed that in a different way. That's okay. Like I don't think that... The thing that shits me is when people go, everything was perfect and you should never change anything. I think this idea that we go, okay, well, comedy changes. Comedy moves forward and society moves forward and comedy is a reflection of you know the conversations we have in society and therefore you've just got to be open to the idea that there are things you are saying now that two or three years from now you wouldn't say in the same way. I know, but I, it makes me sad sometimes. Like I'm like, well, I don't like to feel that you can't win. And you look at somebody who's a visual artist and you're like, your work might date, but it will not necessarily have you condemned in the future. Or you look at someone who writes a violin concerto and you're like, oh, it might, it might be out of fashion in 20 years, but people are unlikely to find clues in it that you were a horrible person. And comedy, unfortunately, it can, um, I mean, it's actual words and words can be really harmful. Like I don't, I actually am not arguing against political correctness or maybe rechecking our material. I just, I think that's, of, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan for looking if something could be harmful and then losing it. But, um, but it makes me sad to think that, yeah, you're right, this show, this next show will have something in it that in three years' time I'll be like, oh, and if only I could see it now. But also you can't talk in the voice of three years from now and have people respond to it right. Like you have to talk in today's language to drag people along to new ideas, right? Do, do, do you know what I mean by that? Yes, absolutely. Unless, unless you talk in the language that they are also using, 
you, you that like you've got to. I mean, basically, I'm saying you can only progress incrementally. You well, you're having you a conversation with your audience, but yeah. also I think that one of the things that really shoots me about, you know, progressives, you know, yeah. uh, you know, a person that I would. Yeah, clearly consider myself probably that you know my philosophy falls into that. But is this idea of judging some judging someone for something you just learnt? You know, there's nothing worse than somebody who's just learnt that this is yeah. the way you're meant to say something or this is the way you're meant to yeah. think about them, and then suddenly forgets that yesterday they were a person who didn't know that. Yeah, you know, like yeah, yeah, agree. And so. Being open to the idea of going, I, I want to get better, and my com- and and I'm assuming the audience will want to get better as well. But it's going to be a gradual process, and we're not going to get this all right at once. I think I have a theory around comedy, which might disturb you based on what you've just said, but I do think that comedians choose comedy whether they do it consciously or subconsciously. You understand that you are signing yourself up to the idea of trying to master something that is unmasterable. Yeah. It is unmasterable because even if you get a joke perfect, the next night it might not work for that audience because you're having a conversation with that audience. Or you can have a perfect joke five years ago or, you know, in 2006. My favourite joke in your show. I don't think you, the person who was telling that joke or me, the person who was laughing at it, either of us are monsters. In fact, I think we're two people who try to think about the harm that our words might have and how we use our words. But... You know, we're different people to what we were in in 2006. That joke wouldn't land today. That joke would horrify people today. But it didn't horrify people then. It amused people then. Things change, you know. And that's a good thing. We should be open to change. This idea, but comedy is unmasterable. A joke that can be perfect one day can suddenly not be perfect the next day. That's, you know. And I hate that about it, but I do actually think that that's what I love about it. Um. I think I think the thing I like most in life is, uh, oh, I don't know, like pursuing new ideas or skills or something. Like I'm a bit of, oh, I don't know, like like as in last year I tried to teach myself Japanese. I was talking about the pleasure of being able to teach yourself a language. So I don't know what my point is, but yeah, like I quite, I quite like the feeling of progressing towards a different, and I know that I will never speak proper Japanese. I've, fluent Japanese. I just know it'll be, it'll never be as good as a Japanese person, no matter how hard I try, but it's so delicious just getting a little bit closer every single day. And so, yeah, I do. I, I hate, I hate that comedy can never be perfect. And I love that it can never be perfect because it gives me something to pursue every day. So the, the exchange student situation. Okay. Yeah. So did, what comes first? Are you trying to learn Japanese or you getting a Japanese exchange student or are they completely... They're uh, quite separate. Separate, They're quite separate to each other. Um, uh, but my daughter... Do- so my daughter's primary school, she's just finished prep. She's done one year of school and the primary school, their chosen language is Japanese. They learn it by immersion in art and science, which I love. So they teach art and science in Japanese, which is the best way to learn the language. And... Um, and that's so I guess they're linked a little bit because when we enrolled Penny at that school, I was like, we've always loved Japan. I'm going to start learning the language. I've got to stay one step ahead of my child. And we planned to go to Japan during Comedy Festival, the Comedy Festival in 2019 that I took off. So we were like, we'll go to Japan. That's a good timeline. So I was on Bake Off set sort of just under a year before going, well, this is a good thing to do to fill my time. 
Um, and then I continued to learn Japanese until we went on our trip. And so it was about learning the language that my kid will be learning over the next six, seven years. Um, um, yeah. And so because we're at this school, we just got a thing in the newsletter that was like, we've got this. It's not a child exchange student. It's a student teacher who's coming on exchange to spend a month teaching. I was going to say, your, your kids are probably a bit young to have Yeah, they don't, you don't send You don't send a five-year-old. <laughs> no. Uh, so yeah, so this will be a young woman who will come and stay with us. And we just put our hands up, but we were like, we're, we're three minutes down the road from the school and we would love to have a guest and we've got a big spare room. We're happy to have her, but we know that we're a prep family. So, you know, don't, don't show us any priority, but then they were really lovely and they drew names out of the hat and we got her and we feel a bit guilty. It's like, oh, we were just offering in case nobody did, but obviously I'm thrilled to have her. I love having house guests. We have people living with us a lot. We love to take in strays. Do what, you, do why you is take that? in strays? Yeah. You know, yeah, we, I uh, bet you do. I mean, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, also there's been a lot over the years of because I'm away a lot. So often yeah, so it's you good may, to oh, have someone right, like someone's in your home. LA apartment. Exactly. You may as well. Yeah. But yeah. also just, you know, good company for, you know, Amy and, you know, these sort of things. So she's uh, a lot of her – I know – I probably know a lot of her girlfriends – very well because at some stage, you know, a whole bunch of them have lived at the houses at some stage, you know, like that difference between somebody knowing someone's friend, you know, at a party or at a dinner versus knowing someone's friend because they've been living in your house. It is a very different level of getting to know somebody. And that is the way Wade knows many of my friends because we do, yeah, we do have, we, we had this lovely visual artist friend of mine just stay uh, I guess on and off for 18 months. Like, it, yeah, and it was excellent. I mean, ridiculous because she keeps night hours and then my kids scream up and down the hall in the morning. It was a terrible combo, but also it was great. She would do taco night every Wednesday and she would sit and draw with the kids. And it's just, I mean, like, honestly, here you go. You talk about um, we're not actively teaching our kids lessons, but I definitely think there's a lot that you teach your children when you keep the house open and you welcome everyone and you also expose them to a whole lot of different other adults so that you are not the only two adults they know well. They've also experienced living with some of your friends or you're taking a family member for a while or your your friend lets their lease go before they move to Sydney and they're with you for a month and a half and it that's good for kids, I reckon. Uh, and what what do you get out of it? Because it's not you've been doing it previous to having kids. I don't know. I don't. I honestly don't know where um, where it comes from. We didn't do that as a family when I was a child. Mm. We were just our family. Well, I mean, like people visited, but they'd go home. People didn't stay. So it doesn't come from there. My uncle did. My uncle took in strays. And I mean, I, I say stray in a joking way. I don't mean any of these people were literal strays. They're all um, beautiful pl- people who were not with us out of desperation just because it seemed like a good way to, uh, yeah, we were, we've taken some recently divorced friends as well, you know? Anyway, so what do I, um, I just really enjoy it, which is strange because I, on paper, I don't like the idea of sharing my space with other people, but case by case, I'm like, yeah, you, yeah, I'd love to have you around for a month. And, um, and I stayed, yeah, I, I was the recipient of others' generosity for years in my early comedy years when I would come and do Melbourne Comedy Festival. And, like, I spent a whole festival staying with um, Minchin 
Yeah, and that was so lovely and kind of him. And another friend who's, yeah, spent a whole comedy festival with another friend. I just, I've got, yeah, I guess maybe because I've been a recipient and it's really nice when you're made to feel completely at home in somebody's spare room and you do get good hangouts. I know well, I, I, I absolutely get it. Like uh, one of the uh, the place that we're moving to has a little separate cottage. Like oh, a, you know, I love it. Which, yeah, they've been using as an Airbnb style thing. But, you know, we'll probably just use as kept up, yeah, kept yeah, up for you friends. Yeah, because you have so many travelling friends. Yeah. You've got so many interstate friends. Perfect. Yeah. We've got one of those, but it's rubbish. We put people in the house. Ours is not very uh, temperature controlled. <laughs> Um, and it's got a corrugated iron roof and you hear the cats fighting and, and like scratching on it in the night. Like it's not, it's a bit too basic. So you know what? If somebody's coming for longer than a month, they get to go out in the shed. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but if, they, if they're staying with us with a, for a decent respectable amount of time, say two weeks, then they get to go in the house. Um, what time it's is it? It's very late. Okay. So. Uh, oh, geez. Yes. Okay. All right. We have to get to the, uh, the standard questions. Okay. Okay. Uh, what do you think happens when we die? Oh, somebody has to clean up your mess. That's it. Nothing. Nothing? Just death. Just, um, yeah. you know, the thing you see happening to animals on the side of the road happens to us, but we get we get sort of tidied away quicker. And you talked about the idea of how much you, you know, the, the, a lot of the rest of your life is framed around ignoring or resisting. De- how How present in your thoughts is it actually? I don't know because I can't. Compare. I don't know what it's like to live in other people's heads, but I think maybe I think about it more than other people. And I, I mean, some mornings I put on underwear thinking that it might be the last. I, I did it this morning. I wasn't even actively being philosophical because I knew I was seeing you, but I remember putting on underwear and I'm like, imagine if that's the last pair I ever wear. I think I think about death a bit too much. I, when I clean up, oh, you know, when my kid brings art home from school, which she did a few days ago, I'm like, I could keep this for me or I could throw it out for whoever cleans up after me when I die. So I def- I think I might think about it more than other people, but I'm not sure because maybe everybody else has got those little death thoughts all the time. I've become more conscious of everything could be my last, yeah. I must admit. And I think partly it's because I've lost a few friends in the last couple of years who have been around my age and you suddenly realise you're at that age where that if you died, people think it w- would think it was sad, but it wouldn't be shocking. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like you're, you're now in an age group where you, people still go, oh, that's young, but they wouldn't be like, what a tragedy gone yes. before their time, you yeah. know? Yeah. And so I do often have a little think about, well, if I died, would this want to, would I have wanted to do this today? Like, Oh, would... yeah. Okay. So you definitely do it mm. like I'd. But I don't think that I used to be like that. I don't think that it was present in my thoughts oh, no, at all. Definitely, I remember turning twenty and going, "Made it." Like I don't know why I thought I was going to die before twenty, but um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, and I'm like, I'm forty three, made it. Like, but it, but it was a really, yeah, it was, it was an actual real thought at twenty. I was like, I don't think there was an actual. I don't think I had a real fear about what was going to kill me. I just was like, just was like, death is everywhere. <laughs> and I, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, it's pretty, Does it's it... always been pretty present for me. And it's not, it's not a bummer. It just feels no. like 
I feel I just feel like it's important to be honest and that's the greatest truth there is. So of course it would accompany me every day. I mean I'm a bit like you now. That's that seems to be a bit more my attitude now. It's not like I have some great fear of death. No? It hasn't really even changed the way that I live, but if you don't like it's it's the one thing that we're all guaranteed. Everyone does. Yeah. Every every great person, every terrible person, every you know death comes for all and mm. it has forever and that is the one thing that you can be certain of is that at some stage you're going to die even when you talk about that idea of being old or whatever you don't know how old you are because old can only be compared to when you're going to die right because yeah. if you're 36 and you're going to die at 37 you, you're old at 36 yeah. <laughs> but if you're 36 yeah. and you're going to die at 96 you're you're, you're barely so a third of yeah, the yeah, way yeah. through your life you've got so much more to go yeah it only matters in comparison to when it finishes, like mm. in that regard. But does having kids change that relationship at all or has it just been a constant through having kids? Because I, I have had friends, you know, talk to me about this who have said, I didn't really think about death at all until I had kids. But then, of course, the oh. idea that you have to be there for your children brings it forefront in your mind. No, no, it didn't make it more or less. Mm. It made it slightly less because when you are in discomfort, you think about it less. Like the more you're focused on everyday living and the difficulty of everyday living, the less I, for me, the less I think about it. So we did some things like we made a will finally, but that wasn't even thinking about death. That was just better do the right thing for my kids. I wasn't, it didn't, I didn't become any more certain that I was going to die or any more afraid of death, which is strange, but yeah, no kids didn't bring it, um, front of mind for me. It was just always there. Um, yeah. And I re- you know what? You, you were like, if you're going to leave to 90, at, at 36, you're a third of the way through. It's funny. You said that. And I was like, yeah, but the good third. <laughs> I realise I, I, I feel like life has um, diminishing value and that's something I've got to work on as well. You know, the sense that it's going to get more and more boring and you're less and less interesting as you get older. And I hope that's not true. I think I must have just hung out with too many boring older people. I think that you have control over that, but mm. you have to make those decisions because life will funnel you into a, it gets more boring as it goes on mm, world. It will, won't it? But also there's nothing wrong with being boring. I mean, no. I'm really, um, I'm using a young person's, I mean, I'm not 43, but I'm, I'm still using my young person's filter on what is valuable. What is a good life? What, what is fun living? And it's like, actually, maybe there's something great about just bloody spending a whole day in the garden you know what? It needs it. And also you feel great at the end of it. Why is that less valuable than going to a music festival where you'll actually have a pretty horrible time and lose everyone you came to hang out with? Well, it's not, I don't think. No, it's not. And so I need to, I need to, I need to update my, um, yeah, I really, it's, I, I, way back at the start, I said I was thinking about life philosophy this week. And so I think this, this isn't my answer to life philosophy but it's a really interesting thing that I thought up that has really helped me because I definitely think sometimes I look around at all the people on a tram and I'm like, what a shame that only a few of us can be special. And I don't, I'm not talking about me. I'm just, isn't it a shame that so many lives are a complete waste because they're not, you know, there's so few extraordinary people and it's a really, and I'll catch myself thinking that because it's not true and everybody's special. It's a ridiculous thing to think, but that's part of my sadness about death is probably I will die and as I die, I will realise I was just another ordinary person, which is stupid and ridiculous. In the last week, I've been thinking about, so so sometimes new thoughts don't come out quite as poetic as you want them to be. 
but I've been thinking about every single human as a musical instrument and how we just toodle through life, all playing songs. Every day we can play one long song over a month and we just play lots of songs and sometimes our songs, you know, sometimes we're playing songs together and sometimes we're just walking down the street playing our own song and it would just... I'm like, yeah, that's all it is. All life is. It's just you playing your little musical instrument for as many years as you live. And isn't that a beautiful, lovely thought? Everybody's songs are valid. It's like nobody's, there's no such thing as the best song. So there's no such thing as the best human. Like surely just just playing your own tune beautifully is is a wonderful and valuable and valid thing. And then you die at the end of that. But it doesn't matter that you die because you played so many good songs. Or the same song for ages, if it was a really good one. But, yeah, you played so many lovely songs. doesn't matter. We don't even have to listen to each other's songs. It's just lovely that there's songs playing every day. Anyway, but also that, so that's that my... You, that, it's given, it's given your, me real happiness this that week. Your song that your song was probably someone's favourite song. It might have... Yeah. You know? Yeah, it probably was. And I think so often in life we measure, like, every, everything. Like, measure like, it in numbers. Yeah. This song went to number one and thousands of people love this song. I know that I've just taken to an actual song, but I'm going to use it. No, just, please. Yeah. No, that's, that's but, useful. Yeah. yeah. Yes. But that song that went to number one and sold a million copies wasn't my favorite song of the year. My favorite song was that song number six on that album that, you know, when I listened to the lyrics, I was like, oh yeah, I went through that. That's exactly what I wanted. And that's my favorite song. And that's the song that I'll go to. I'm a, you know, when I'm feeling down or I'm on my way to the gig, I'll play that song because that song meant something to me. The fact that it didn't get to number one, the fact that it wasn't the lead single off that album, the fact that you don't play it live when I come to see you doesn't matter because it's still yeah. my favourite song. And you never know like when you've well, written, yeah, written somebody's favourite song. It might, it might be song. like when your mum sings this old man quietly to you at bedtime. That's also another really beautiful favourite song that doesn't go to number one. Lots of little quiet songs happening all through life. Um, so uh, we need to finish up, but I want to ask you a few more questions. What do you I'll think your greatest? Short. No, please don't. <laughs> yeah, uh, no. What do you? Uh, what do you? I'll think at your... least not talk about my garden anymore. What do you think? Uh, I brought you. I, I'm into. I'm probably going to. I up, know. I'll probably end up with a gardening podcast because now oh, I. Oh my god! Please. Now that I have a, I could probably do like a from you know, from brown thumb to green thumb sort of yeah, style you could. podcast you where. Could. I learn how to, you know, look after my own garden. Yeah. Because what I have is, the, you know, you were talking before about that idea of like you can't afford to, you know, get, spend that $200 or $300 on. What I have is the opposite situation is the people who have owned this place previously have put so much work and care into, you know, creating this beautiful thing. All I have to do is not fuck it up. Like I don't have to go out of my way to make it better. I just have to not fuck up what they've already done. So that's kind of what I'm aiming for is like to get to a level where I have I don't fuck up what was already there, you know. Okay. Um, you can do it, I believe. Well, this is going to be my learning Japanese. Yeah. And I'm really Oh, you know what? You'll have you'll have a couple of setbacks. Okay, don't I'm talking about gardening. Keep What was the question? No, so many No, so I will have so many setbacks. You will have so many setbacks. Oh. You'll fuck it up. So many times. But I'm open to that. I'm actually... Good. I think you are too. I don't have any particular level of... Pe- Ego? When it comes to gardening. Yeah. At all. You're just going to give... That's just what's gonna... quite pleasant about it is I know that I know nothing about it and yes. I'm excited to learn something about it and go on my 40-year project, hopefully, of, yeah. you know, eventually just being one of those old people who cares about that nothing cares but about their, their garden. garden. <laughs> could, you, could you want anything more? <laughs> Not really. But... 
Uh, what do you consider to be your greatest strength? It's a confronting question, isn't it? It's a hard one to answer, but what do you think it is? Two things occurred at the same time. I'm just going to pick the one that makes me look better. Um, <laughs> my ability to befriend other people. My ability to... Um, uh, to, to assess a person and work out how to work well with them, even if we're very different. And in some ways that's a massive weakness as well, because I admire people who are able to identify that somebody's a complete asshole and not worth their time. And I'm maybe not good enough at that, but I, I think w what I'm good at is, I, and I, it make, I, I make it sound psychopathic, but it's not. It's like it's because I genuinely really like people and I think I can see when they have, like, discomfort in certain areas or when certain things are likely to make them angry. I think usually when it comes to meeting new people, I can work out how to put them at ease and be friends with them. Uh, if there was a strength that you don't have that you could have, like if you could take from somebody else, is there something that you admire that you're like, you think, oh, I wish I had that ability or that strength? Oh, do you know, I wish I could follow my gut. Yeah. I do not trust my gut at all. Why? Oh, because I think my gut speaks in fear mostly. You know, like I actually think I have to, I just don't believe it. And so if I'm trying to, if I, like when I do one of those big decisions and I'm like, okay, I've been offered this job, what does my gut say? And then my gut will just say something stupid like, um, like, um, yeah, you know, like, yeah, do it, but, um, but with a bag on your head, I don't know, you know, like as in, as in my gut just doesn't, my gut doesn't know. Like my gut is all interested in, my gut is interested in yeah. protecting me and protecting yourself isn't the best way to make decisions that are going to give your life something, um, fun to do. So I can't trust my gut, but some people are really good at it. They're really good at making decisions when, yeah, being faced with a big decision and just going, I know, I know what to do. What uh, makes you happiest? When, when do you feel like, oh, I'm just really happy? Um, when I get, when I get flow. Um, so I love sewing a costume for my kid and the whole act is really generous because it's for my kid. And also I love sewing. I love constructing something three-dimensional out of two-dimensional pieces. So that's a really good example. Or if I'm doing a puzzle and I get in or an escape room or something like that flow, that thing, anything that gives me a, um, do you know, it's not just being in the moment, but it's your mind wandering in an uncontrolled way at the same time. It's just that lovely where else do I get it? I don't, I don't know. So if you, if you get in a good place where you're genuinely playing with your kids and you're not looking at your watch or your phone, that's, that's it as well. That's what makes me happy. But I know that's really broad and vague, but it's, no, that's good. It's flow. I like that. Flow's a good answer, I think. Um, uh, so I had a question and then I got uh, into your flow and I forgot what it was. Um, Oh, okay. So at the end of your show, um, what, what would what's the feeling you want people to walk away with at the end of one of your performances? Do you think about that? That'd be that'd be good. Um, maybe I will this year. 
um, still still feel a little tiny bit like I'm on the defensive at Comedy Festival. I'm like, I hope I get away with this rather than what do I want to achieve. So what do I want people? I, I want everyone to leave with their favourite new way of thinking about something small. You know, like, so just that, because that's what I love about coming out of a stand-up show myself. Like, as, as in, I want to just laugh the whole way through and like the person. Great. But, like, when you take that one thing home, like, after that, I, I remember watching James Acaster and he does that thing about when you go to bed and you shout out, no more jobs, because that's what going to bed is. It means no more jobs. And I cannot, I mean, I'm, I'm not doing it any justice, but I've, like, that's my favourite little thing from that show. Of my favourite new way of thinking about something little. And I just, I want everyone to take a little tidbit in their pocket. Uh, final question. We made it. Are you happy? Yeah. Yeah. That isn't the question. Sorry. Okay. One, one other question. <laughs> I'm very happy. Um, so uh, I have a time machine and I can take you back to any moment in your life any, or any moment in history, but I prefer any moment in your life. And you have the opportunity to change that moment or you have the opportunity to observe that moment. A, would you take the trip and B, where would you go? So are you, like I can engage with the moment? Yeah, if you want to. You can change it if you would like to. Or you can just be an observer of that moment. God, it'd be so good just to go back and watch, like, watch a really happy moment. But I'd actually, like to go back to when I did my first ever episode of Good News Week and I'd li- like I'd like to just take myself aside and, you know, I'd be able to tell myself exactly how I'm feeling and I'd be like, can you just take your blinkers off, look around. When you are introduced to the people on this set, look them in the eye, remember their name. When you are brought on to meet the audience, look them in the eye, talk to them, tell them a joke. When you start the show, shake hands and welcome all of the guests. Make sure they're at ease and then make sure you start talking because I was in, I was, I felt like such an imposter and it only just started wearing off as the three and a half years wrapped up. And I wish that I'd just lived it a bit more instead of waiting to be found out. I, I, that's such a beautiful answer because I relate to that so much. I know we're meant to be finishing and that'll be a nice place to finish, but I need to tell you that I see you because that is, I think a very common feeling, but also you were, I mean, you were you know, thrown into a, you know, a role in a big pre-existing machine, you know, and a cultural phenomenon really, you know, um, you're not making it any better. No, no, no. As no, in like, I'm as in, yeah. I think you would have yeah, felt, it was a show you would have I'd felt watched. like that regardless. How, how strange. But to be in the middle of something that is already, I think when you start out on something, everybody has that feelings regardless. Like, you know, I've, I wish that I could go back and do Glasshouse again now because I never. Really? Oh, I was terrified. the confidence that came yeah. through on screen, I would never have guessed. Terrified every moment of it and never felt like I ever did the job that I think that I could now do hosting that show because if I just put my fear to one side, my, my sense that I constantly had to, I just felt like every time I went out there, I just had to prove myself 
And I don't think that you that is necessarily when you're at your best. You know, like sometimes you've got to get to the point where you go, I belong here and now I can start doing my best work because I know that I belong here. And, you know, nearly every job that you ever start, I think you have that. But to jump into something that was already up and going and already something just doubles that, you know. It's an incredibly natural thing to feel, but, like, of course that's the moment you want to go back to. Yeah. Of course that's the moment that you want to go back and, and hug that person and say, this is going to be all right. You're going to do a really good job of this, and this is going to be a really successful thing. But it can be even more successful and fun and all those well, things. Well, it could be more you, fun. It yeah, could be more, more fun. fun. Yeah. But I don't think I – th- I think often we think, and I've made this mistake so many times in my life, is that if – that having fun and it being successful are two separate things. Like almost that if you start having fun with it, that in some ways that means that you're not being as professional with it. If you're having fun, it. you are not working hard enough. Right. But you, Whereas actually it often it in comedy is the complete opposite. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very good answer. I like that a lot. And I can't imagine what that was like. It must have been a... I mean, it must have been very exciting, but it must have been also come with an incredible amount of terror at the same time, I imagine, that that whole job. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, and no one would have... Was there anyone who got that at the time? Was there Were there people around you that were just like, who knew the magnitude of what a, like a, what a job to take on that was, who were... I don't know. Like, it's hard until somebody's really... been through it to... Yeah, I wish... Understand it. I like, the best person is you from the future with a time machine. Me to from come the back. future is the best <laughs> yeah, person. the best person. No, and maybe... But I, everybody was very kind yeah. and welcoming and lovely, and it may be that I just did a really good act of somebody at ease. Yeah. Maybe I just... Maybe I was convincingly confident. Yeah. I don't know. Ted... Ted Robinson, glorious man, Ted Robinson, was, he was a gentle guiding hand, but he was also, he had a lot on. And also, I don't think it's his style to coach. He gives, he throws you a few little gems, like, be great if you start talking a bit earlier in the app, <laughs> while he gives you a hug, right? But he's not going to sit you down and no. have a big D&M. No. So... Yeah, I must. Um, maybe, maybe I was doing too good a job of acting comfortable. Uh, the show is called Biscuits, not Dog Biscuits. Uh, it starts in Perth in January. You're doing it in Perth first. Yeah, 29th of January. So Perth Fringe. Perth Fringe, and then uh, midway through Feb, I'll go to Adelaide Fringe, and then I will do the first half of Melbourne Comedy Festival. This is my new discovery. You don't have to do the whole thing. You just do a week here and there. It's good, isn't it? <laughs> Such a clever trick. Bit of self-care. Uh, this has been so much fun. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Oh. Um, it's been the best. Thank you for doing it. Um, best of luck with the show. What else do we need to plug? Bake Off, is that back? No, we just um, we just wrapped the last season. Okay. I will, will, I'll let you know if we do another one. Okay. Yeah. All right. Oh, and children's book. What about that? Oh, comes out in September. Yeah. It's going to be rad. Um, don't even know what it's. We called. don't. We don't even know when people are listening to this. That's the nature of podcasts. That's so right. So, there's a real chance that it could be coming out this week, wherever you in the right. timeline that people are listening. Likely to be September 2020. I have this gorgeous illustrator who's this really young girl, new, um, and it's so exciting to be working with her. And it's called at the moment. 
but probably not on the front cover of the book. It's called Princess Benjamina Has a Very Cheeky Bum. But it's not a fart book. It's not another fart book, as my agent thought. It's not about farts. Her bum says her inner thoughts. You know how we're all very polite and we don't say the things we think? Well, her bum yells the things she thinks, which is really embarrassing for a princess. There the you go. End. Uh, the end. The end.